Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 87. The Price of Salt by Claire Morgan, also known as Carol by Patricia Highsmith. Dearest, there are no accidents and everything comes full circle. No explanation I offer will satisfy you. You seek resolutions because you're young. But you will understand this one day. How many times have you been in love? <laughs> you're always the most beautiful woman in the room. Therese Balavet. Carol. She's still my wife. I love her. I can't help you with that. It shouldn't be like this. I know. If he can't have me, I can't see my daughter. Everything comes full circle. And when it happens, I want you to imagine me there to greet you. Carol, I miss you. We gave each other the most breathtaking of gifts. I will not negotiate anymore. I want it, and I will not deny it. Would you? Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we both read, and we determine whether it is worthy of its reputation, whether that be positive, negative, or neutral, and whether we should consider it required reading. 
So I am <laughs> leading us through this. I always seem to choose these period pieces to probably the chagrin of my co-host. But it is I, Stella, as the leader of this. And with me is a guy that's been working with me at, uh, what is it, Franken Frankendorf's? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in the train department. It's my good friend, Tom Panneries. Hi. <laughs> now, Tom, I'm excited to talk to you briefly about uh, a book that you got from your good friend Stella for Christmas. Oh, yes. And we had mentioned it, and it was, of course, related to the Goon Squad because he mm. thought, oh, this is what I was thinking about. But now you actually got to read it. So do you have any thoughts about Daisy and the Six? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you gave me Daisy Jones and the Six uh, for Christmas. I devoured that book. <laughs> it was so good. I'm a sucker for, like, rock and roll stories, like movies like Almost Famous it had an almost famous vibe to it, and uh, that's right up my alley. And oh man, this, but I really do recommend reading the book. It's it's really really well done. Um, it has that oral history format that works really well with it. And yeah, I might actually check out the uh, Amazon series. I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch that yet, but I heard really good things about it, and I heard uh, Elvis's granddaughter is pretty good in it. So yeah, no, I thought that you would like it, especially its format, because of course we did the um, World War Z, which is mm -hmm. similar. And I also think about the things they carried, or is it the things we carried? The things they carried, the yeah, Tim yeah. O'Brien novel? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a one-to-one -one comparison, but just like a similar where you've got these different voices coming through. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad that you liked it. Obviously, I got the gift. I'm like, oh, wait, there's a return receipt. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted, because I knew it was on your list, so I wasn't sure if one of your family members would get it. But I do also recommend the Amazon series. I think the Amazon series goes... It's a bit heavier with like the romance, whereas I mm -hmm. felt like the romance was subtle and understated in the in the interview. Uh, but perhaps I didn't read as as like in between the lines as I should have been. But I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about that. Okay, yes? no, it's really really good. Thank you very much. Oh, I think I read. I think it took welcome. me like two days to read. I was just you know because we were on break and I was just like yeah blew through it. Yeah, you had texted that you were reading it very quickly and you enjoyed it. And I think at that time I had already announced that we were going to be reading Carol. <laughs> and I thought, he's not talking about Carol. So, I, I uh, yes, no, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to get you a gift, number one, that uh, you didn't have and that you enjoyed it so much. So there you go. Yeah. We've, we've got two stamps of approval because I also really like Daisy Jones and the Six. I really like that author. I've only read, I guess, that and then Evelyn, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which people kept recommending to me. And I was like, ugh, because I guess I'm just one of those people who when there is a lauded or just something that you hear all the time, that sort of book, I always am like, ugh, I, I just don't know about it. But that actually does deserve its reputation. And okay. it was one of those books that... It took me longer to finish than it should have because I didn't want it to end. Mm. So I was just like delaying it. But uh, yeah, but I, I do like that author. So Perhaps, I'll have to check that yes. out. Yeah. Perhaps, I remember that coming out, but I don't, I don't think yeah. I've ever. Yeah. I mean, who knows if that author will make it to a required reading? 
Mm. Well, we do have, or we're going to be talking about Carol or the Price of Salt. Uh, I'm sure I'll use it interchangeably. I kind of like the Price of Salt a little bit better than Carol. I remember reading, obviously we're going to get into the history there. I remember reading it prior to the film, and the film I can't think came out in, in 2015. So it had been a while since I had read it. And so I was like confident in my choice but then when i op sat down and reopened it i was like man i feel so sorry now for tom so <laughs> i i am interested to hear what he has to say because as i was reading i thought oh i'll be real surprised if he said that he enjoyed it but what is your history with the prize of salt well, this is the only this is honestly the only time i've ever read it uh, i had not heard of it until i saw the trailer for the for the 2015 movie. And even then, um, I never saw Carol, the, the film probably just like, remember the trailer and it kind of just in one ear out the other, you know, like as, as sometimes movie trailers do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it got some Oscar buzz if I can't yeah. re- remember. It's, it's kind of a blur. Uh, yeah. So and I, I had known it was a novel, but like, again, it was just kind of one of those things that like when you brought it up at the end of last episode, it's kind of the memory was jogged a little bit. So this is pretty much it. Okay. So I, I did not know. I remember Kate Blanchett did not remember Rooney Mara in the trailer. Um, so I can picture Kate Blanchett when I was reading as Carol. Yeah. And then with Rooney Mara, it's, I always feel like she's kind of with these edgier roles. Mm. So to have her as Therese, I think is, is really interesting, especially because like, girl with the dragon tattoo or something like that so to have yeah. her as this kind of meek and mild character is interesting to to consider Rooney Mara has that look yeah kind of like a shy Audrey Hepburn type of look to mm-hmm. her um Rachel Brosnahan could not play this character as the other character person I could think of who plays like a role in Mrs. Maisel like mm-hmm. of that era yeah. but she's she is uh, even though as good as she was on um House of Cards. Uh, uh, yeah, House of Cards. She isn't mousy enough. Yeah. To to play to play this role. Um. So yeah, but Rooney Mara, I could see playing this very kind of demure character. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah, she does do a good job. I. This is probably nothing. Something that has never come up in our conversations or on this podcast. But I hate movie tie-in covers of books. I just, re- I just really don't like them. So if and of course it's harder if you are going to purchase a book and a movie has been announced, they know why you're getting it. So of course it's like more difficult to get that than the original. Yeah. And unfortunately, I do have <laughs> I I see Kate and I see Rooney on mm. my cover, but that's just like a little a little side story. Uh, no, I have. It is not a. Yeah, it's it's not a movie cover, but it does have the now a major motion picture circle okay, yeah. on it from the from the library there. I um I actually am not that big of a fan of movie tie-in covers either, especially um especially if I'm familiar with the original cover, like the original yeah. cover or something like that. But I, I probably do have a few that are the movie tie-ins only because that was the edition available at the time. Yeah, but, sometimes yeah. you can't do it. Like, for instance, the Daisy Jones that I got you mm-hmm. that has uh, the actress. And yes. that was... I had gotten that book 
um, maybe like a day or so before I was we were gonna meet, mm-hmm. and it was the only copy there. It was in a <laughs> weird section because like the other side was alphabetical at Barnes and Noble, and then I went over and like started. I don't know what their system is. I'll have to talk to Donovan, but it was the only one there. And I was just like, this is unfortunate, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting <laughs> getting that. Our Barnes and Noble is weird because they they do break things up by genre, yeah. which every Barnes and Noble does. But I think where they have the genres placed on the bookcases is strange. It is. It, so. Both sides were fiction, but it was yeah. like I was looking for – I don't know. It's just weird how I couldn't see any of her books, which I thought was shocking. And mm-hmm. then I went to the other side and it started over – a through Z, and I thought, okay, and then I found it. Yeah, so it yeah. worked up. I will say this about book covers, by the way. There are some very good ones out there, as I've seen of books I purchased recently. But have you noticed how horribly generic a lot of book covers have become over the like, last few years? Yes, I will say because I've fallen into this deep, dark hole of smut. That <laughs> that in particular, they're like very cutesy and it's almost disarming because you're like, oh, this will be a cute romance. And then you open it upside and it's like, whoa, this is some dirty stuff that's going on in here. But yeah, they all look generally the same with the like the color palette and the faceless images and stuff. But mm-hmm. yes, I yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I will say in terms of movie covers, I also don't it's harder to allow a movie cover on a book if it's like in a series yeah because then you might just have one for example if you got one with girl with the dragon tattoo and it's Rudy Mara and Daniel Craig they haven't made any of the other ones in America anyway so then yes. you would just have this one looking thing and then the other ones which have a distinct design on mm-hmm. them. Uh, luckily I have all of, like the original design covers but that would be like another thing that would kind of get my goat my copies of all three of the Lord of the Rings books were a mix of the movie covers and the okay. painted covers because of what was available at the store at the time. So yeah. I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure our audience is getting a kick out of this. But yeah, yeah definitely, you know, write in and let us know if you have a, a horse in the race on movie adaptation covers versus original. Tom, before I give my history, I wondered if you have any history with Patricia Highsmith in general, if you've seen any of her films, Talented Mr. Ripley would be a big one, or Strangers on a Train. Have you read any other of of her books or seen any of the films that were adapted from her Uh, works? I have not read any of her other books. I think I've seen... I don't know if I've seen all of the talented Mr. Ripley, but I do remember watching a good portion of it back when it first came out on video. Like, God, that's like almost 20 years ago at this point, uh, you know, with Matt Damon and yep. Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow, I think. Yep. So, yeah, I didn't. And actually, it wasn't until I opened up the book that um, and saw other books by Patricia Highsmith. And I saw that I was like, oh, yeah, the talented Mr. Ripley. So, yeah, so I have I have a limited amount of exposure to this author. Yes. I don't know if I've read Talented Mr. Ripley. I feel like I may have. I think my mother has a collection of all the Ripley stories. Talented Mr. Ripley was one of the first, I think, R-rated films that I had seen. And I recommend that to 
any yeah you did you just chuckle because you and your history as a child going to see wildly I think mine inappropriate was commando. action films <laughs> or i uh, think mine was commando yeah 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 but which i i do recommend i actually recently recommended that to somebody because seeing salt burn i was getting a lot of town to mr ripley feel mm. so if you enjoyed salt burn or maybe you want to experience that similar to salt burn but not as disturbing then yeah watch town to mr ripley and then I think I had seen maybe Strangers on a Train, and I recently reread it because it had popped up in something that I was reading. But as I was reading it, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. As I was reading it, I was like, this seems so familiar. I think I've read this before. Because pre-Goodreads, you know, I don't have a log of what I've yeah. read. So sometimes, I, which happened within, uh, I think it happened one night, or I can't remember what it's called with um, an F. Scott Fitzgerald book where I'm reading. I'm like, I think I read Tender is the night? Yeah, it might be. Uh, but it was just like unfortunate. And I, I was just in it too deep that I'm like, well, I might as well read. So I think I've read that twice now. But Goodreads is very helpful because now I can go on and be like, oh, I read that already. Yeah. Um. So I, I feel like... Maybe those talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train bookended reading Carol because I had seen, you know, the film that was coming out, uh, saw the trailer like you and, and wanted to read it before I had seen the film. So that's my history, I guess, with the author and um, with this book. So okay. we will get into uh, the history of the author as well as the context of the book. And I will talk about some shocking things so we'll yeah we'll, we'll we will get into that because i feel like someone actually mentioned that to me at one point but i must have blocked it out but we'll, we'll we will talk about it because i don't care to be known as a hypocrite on this show anyways i am on my own show but in terms of inspiration i think i, I well should I do inspiration first? Or I guess I'll do the, the author's biography. So Patricia Highsmith was an American novelist and short story writer, widely known for her psychological thrillers, including her series of five novels featuring the character Tom Ripley. And this is all coming from Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. She wrote 22 novels and numerous short stories throughout her career spanning nearly five decades. And her work has led to more than two dozen film adaptations. Her writing derived influence from existentialist literature Literature and question notions of identity and popular morality. And she was dubbed, quote, the poet of apprehension by novelist Graham Greene. So she was born in Fort Worth, Texas. Gotta love it. In 1927, Highsmith, her mother, and her adoptive stepfather, artist Stanley Highsmith, whom her mother married in 1924, moved to New York City. And when she was 12, she was sent to Fort Worth and lived with her maternal grandmother for a year. She called this the saddest year of her life and felt abandoned by her mother, which I think we see some themes in what I'll talk about uh, within Carol. She returned to New York to continue living with her mother and stepfather, primarily in Manhattan, but also in Astoria, Queens. According to Highsmith, her mother once told her that she had tried to abort her by drinking turpentine, although a biography of Highsmith indicates Jay Plangman tried to persuade his wife to have the abortion, but she refused. Highsmith never resolved this love-hate relationship, which reportedly haunted her for the rest of her life, and which she fictionalized in The Terrapin, her short story about a young boy who stabs his mother to death. Highsmith's mother predeceased her by only four years, dying at the age of 95. 
Highsmith's grandmother taught her to read at an early age, and she made good use of her grandmother's extensive library. At the age of nine, she found a resemblance to her own imaginative life and the case histories of the human mind by Carl Menninger, a popularizer of Freudian analysis. Many of Highsmith's 22 novels were set in Greenwich Village. In 1942, she graduated from Barnard College, where she studied English composition, playwriting, and short story prose. After graduating from college and despite endorsements from highly placed professionals, she applied without success for a job at publications such as Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, Mademoiselle, Good Housekeeping, Time, Fortune, and The New Yorker. Based on the recommendation from Truman Capote, Highsmith was accepted by the Yaddo Artist Retreat during the summer of 1948, where she worked on her first novel, Strangers on a Train. She endured cycles of depression, some of them deep throughout her life. Despite literary success, she wrote in her diary in January 1970 that, quote, I am now cynical, fairly rich, lonely, depressed, and totally pessimistic. She did have a troubled life. Uh, I'm kind of scanning through to see uh, some of these things. I feel like we don't need to get into a lot of it. It'll bring us down for sure. Uh, She famously preferred the company of animals to that of people and stated in a 1991 interview, quote, I choose to live alone because my imagination functions better when I don't have to speak with other people. She has been described as, by some, a, quote, lesbian with a misogynistic or a misogynist streak, which we can, I guess, discuss if we see that in Carol. I don't think I do. As an adult, Highsmith's sexual relationships with predominantly with women. She occasionally engaged in sex with men without physical desire for them and wrote in her diary that, quote, the male face doesn't attract me, isn't beautiful to me. So if we were to talk about inspiration then for... Carol. Uh, According to Highsmith, it was inspired by an actual blonde woman in a mink coat who ordered a doll from her while Highsmith was working as a temporary sales clerk in the toy section of Bloomingdale's in New York City during Christmas season of 1948. And here's a block quote from her. Perhaps I noticed her because she was alone or because a mink coat was a rarity and because she was blondish and seemed to give off light. With the same thoughtful air, she purchased a doll, one of two or three I'd shown her, and I wrote her name and address on the receipt because the doll was to be delivered to an adjacent state. It was a routine transaction. The woman paid and departed, but I felt odd and swimmy in the head, near to fainting, yet at the same time uplifted, as if I had seen a vision. As usual, I went home after work to my apartment where I lived alone. That evening, I wrote out an idea, a plot, a story about the blondish and elegant woman in the fur coat. I wrote some eight pages in longhand in my then-current notebook, or what is that word? Cahier? Have you ever seen that word before? Cahier. Um, it's French. I cannot remember what it <laughs> Okay. I guess it's some sort of notebook or moleskine. So she apparently completed the book's outline in two hours that night, likely under the influence of chickenpox, which she discovered she had only the next day. Uh, she said, quote, fever is stimulating to the imagination. She completed the novel by 1951. This, as we're calling it, semi-autobiographical story, was mined from her own life references and desire for a lost love. She described the character of Therese as having come from my own bones. That's a quote. And the playwright Phyllis 
Nagy or Nagy, who met Highsmith in 87 and developed a friendship with her that lasted for the remainder of Highsmith's life, said that Therese was Highsmith's alter ego and the voice of an author. The character of Carol aired, and much of the plot of the novel was inspired by Highsmith's former lovers, Catherine Hamill Cohen, and that's an interesting last name given what we know, and Philadelphia socialite Virginia Kent Catherwood and her relationships with them. Virginia lost custody of her daughter in divorce proceedings that involved tape-recorded lesbian trysts in hotel rooms. The story shared the same sexual behavior and intense emotion obsessions that Highsmith's writing became known for. Highsmith placed Therese in the world of New York theater with friends who are vaguely bohemian artists or would-be artists and signaled their intellectual aspirations by noting they read James Joyce, which I thought was funny because I don't care for him. Well, I shouldn't, that's... That's crazy. I th- or that's more of a generalization, but you don't know, worry, I don't like. either. Okay, and Gertrude Stein, the latter unmistakably lesbian, all are struggling to find a place for themselves in the world. The first working title of the novel was the Bloomingdale Story. Other names Highsmith later considered were the Argument of Tantalus, Blasphemy of Laughter, and Paths of Lightning. Before finally naming it the Price of Salt. Highsmith said that she settled on the title from a thought about the price paid by Lot's wife when she looked back towards Sodom. It's more likely, however, that she was invoking a biblical reference from the gospel text, Matthew 5.13, that Andre Gide, Gide included in his novel The Counterfeiters, a work about the transgressive love of adolescence that Highsmith once took to heart. Quote, If the salt have lost its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? That is the tragedy with which I am concerned. End quote. Originally, Highsmith's publisher Harper and Burroughs rejected the manuscript. Her agent warned her that she was committing a career suicide by following strangers on a train with a blatantly lesbian novel. And it was accepted by Coward McCann and published in hardcover in 52 with the Claire Morgan alias, so she could kind of be safe there. And she dedicated the book to Edna, Jordy, and Jeff, three people whom... Highsmith invented so who even knows what the the purpose of that was so adaptation wise uh, there was an unsuccessful uh, unsuccessful attempt to make this book in the early 1950s into a film in the screen treatment the title was changed to winter journey and the character of carol was changed to carl a radio adaptation titled carol was broadcast by bbc radio 4 in december of 2014 with miranda richardson as carol aired and andrea deck as therese bellavet it comprised five segments of approximately 15 minutes A 2015 British-American film adaptation of the novel Carol was directed by Todd Haynes, which is apropos because now, of course, this this current award season 2023, technically, um, even though it will be 2024 Oscars, he is now, he's back in it with May-December, which is also apropos because there's kind of a May-December thing going on here. But anyways, uh, the screenplay is by Phyllis Nagy, or, which makes sense because they had a relationship there. And the film stars, as we have mentioned, Kate Blanchett as Carol and Rooney Mara as Therese. This film, Carol, was an official selection of the 2015 Cannes Film Festival and won the Queer Palm Award. And it received six Academy Award nominations and nine British Academy Film Award nominations. It is on Netflix currently as of whatever today is, late January of this recording. Uh, I recently rewatched it. It does take liberties just because the point of view, obviously, within this novel is all Therese's point of view, which 
that that would be a good question to ask. But in the film, I think maybe to expand it out, you see things that Therese would not have seen. So you mm. get more of you get a little bit more of Harge um, and Abby okay. and uh, Carol without Therese. So just FYI. Uh, by the way, uh, cahier is a is just the French word for notebook. Oh, interesting. So they just said the same word, but twice. Okay. So I do want to mention something that is unfortunate, and that is that High Smith was – I was trying to decide whether I should say is or was, but she, she's dead now – an avowed anti-Semite. And so we here on required reading do not obviously care for those sorts of people, and we don't want to promote those people. And so you might be asking, why still have you done this? Now, I, in my <laughs> defense, I did not know until the time of my research, and I had already said we're doing Carol, and um, had already read it and everything. And I, you know, I had just said on my own, you know, other show, Back Row the Oracle, that I have difficulty with Death of the Author. I really do bring their personal history into it and, and I try not to promote those sorts of things. So I do apologize, especially in this particular time of what we're going through um, and really timelessly uh, that we, we are reading someone who is an anti Semite. So I do apologize for that. Tom, do you have anything to say on that? No, definitely the author is an interesting conversation. I actually yeah. didn't know about this until tonight. Yeah, when I, I said I didn't oh, read Tom. up on the history of the yeah. author prior to this. So, but yeah, I don't think I would have sought it out had I known it. And her views like were yeah. very anti-Semitic. It's not you know that she said some anti-Semitic stuff. She was like, yeah, flat out stated. It, which is and, and has some like very um, awful things to say. So, um, yeah, which is which is, you know, because I have avoided other authors who's right. either had political philosophies, like very strong political philosophies yeah. that they put right in their works or were usually uh, like racism and homophobia are the two that I tend to come across in in some people, uh, for instance, I've never read Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card because of the homophobic things he has said. I'm just like, yeah, I don't need to read that. But, you know, again, again, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to have considering that there are authors out there who I think we both have read who have mm -hmm. said some pretty problematic things. Yeah, and some, yeah, sometimes you just don't know. I don't know what our responsibility is as readers, I think, and also, you know, as podcasters, what is our responsibility? Do you think that we should begin, if we don't know already, researching the authors and just checking to see before we recommend something? Because, like, that's funny you said about Ender's Game. I wasn't aware of that, and I have it on my – because someone gave it to me. I'm like, I wonder if I should uh... – if I should do that, but then that would be a no-go. Do you, do you think that's our – we should start doing that, kind of looking into authors before we, we do a recommendation? And even personally, is that something that you do? Do you look up authors before? I actually don't tend to look up authors. Yeah. If I'm looking up an author, it's usually just to see what their body of work is. So it is going to make me sound like a hypocrite because it's like, you know, there are some people where I'm like, I know about them. I'm like, well, I don't want to read your stuff. And there are others that I find this stuff out later and I'm just like, you know, a little, I, I, there are times where I am conflicted about this. I don't think Highsmith's views affect this novel. No, I did not which see. Which is important. I guess that would be important yeah. to note. I would have been 
I think I would have actually probably put a question in had anything popped up, but I don't think anything pops up in here that would bring an alarm. No. Um, so I think that's that's what made it potentially difficult. Yeah. Well, it made it more difficult once I did my post research. I'm like, oh. So yeah, here we are. Well, I guess that could just be. I mean, I'll say for me, anyways, to be more responsible in that. You know, you and I have talked about Sherman Alexi. Mm-hmm. And I had covered um, last year. I was helping out a junior English teacher. I was a, subbing for a collab teacher, and they were reading a Sherman Alexi short story about a man who seems to be. I think he's a drunk, and he is trying to get some regalia. I think that was like the core of it. And I went to go look up who this guy was because he was using the word Indian. And I asked her, I was like, what's going on? And she said, oh, no, that's he's, you know, a part of that population. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, because I was already alarmed. And then I, you know, Google searched him and I found out, you know, the party had to play within the the bad party had to play within the Me Too movement. And then I was like, okay, well, I don't really, I don't really need anything to do with him. So I haven't read any of his works besides the mandatory thing that I do for that class. But, uh, yeah, perhaps it's just something that I should, I, yeah, personally, I should start looking up people before I start purchasing their, their books. Okay. Well, anyway, so I guess all I can say is I'm sorry and I didn't know, but now that I know, I will do better. So, uh, obviously, it's it, if you don't want to read this book, don't read it. If you don't want to listen to this episode because of that, I wholeheartedly understand i think that's it for that so i guess we'll just move on to the plot synopsis and again from wikipedia and it's short but honestly if you think about it not a lot happens uh (laughs) anyways uh it's Funny to me, but painful for Tom, probably. So here we go. Therese Belvet is a lonely young woman just beginning her life in her adult life, I should say, in Manhattan. She is 19 at this time and looking for a chance to launch her career as a theater set designer. When she was a young girl, her widowed mother sent her to Episcopalian boarding school, leaving her with a sense of abandonment. Therese is, at the time of us meeting her, dating Richard, a young man she does not love and does not enjoy having sex with. On a long and monotonous day at work in the toy section of a department store during the Christmas season, Therese becomes interested in a customer, an elegant and beautiful woman in her early 30s. The woman's name is Carol Aird, and she gives Therese her address so her purchases may be delivered. On an impulse, Therese sends her a Christmas card. Carol, who is going through a difficult separation and divorce and is herself quite lonely, unexpectedly responds. She calls the story the next day. The two begin to spend time together. Therese develops a strong attachment to Carol. Richard accuses Therese of having a, quote, schoolgirl crush, but Therese knows it is more than that. She is in love with Carol. Carol's husband, Harge, short for Harges, is suspicious of Carol's relationship with Therese, whom he meets briefly when Therese stays over at Carol's house in New Jersey. Carol had previously admitted to Harge that she had a short-lived sexual relationship months earlier with her best friend, Abby. Harge takes his and Carol's daughter, Rindy, to live with him, limiting Carol's access to her as divorce proceedings continue. To escape from the tension in New York, Carol and Therese take a road trip west as far as Utah, over the course of which it becomes clear that the feelings they have for each other are romantic and sexual. They become physically as well as emotionally intimate and declare their love for each other. 
The women become aware that a private investigator is following them, hired by Harge to gather evidence that could be used against Carol by incriminating her as homosexual in the upcoming custody hearings. They realize the investigator has already bugged the hotel room in which Carol and Therese first had sex, which, ironically in a town called Waterloo. On a road in Nebraska, after the detective has followed them for miles and clearly intends to continue doing so, Carol confronts him and demands that he hand over any evidence against her. She pays him a high price for some tapes, even though he warns her that he has already sent several tapes and other evidence to Harge in New York. Carol knows that she will lose custody of Rindy if she continues her relationship with Therese. She decides to return to New York to fight for her rights regarding her daughter and will return to Therese as soon as she can. Therese stays alone in the Midwest, thinking that Carol's going to return to her. Eventually, Carol writes to tell her that she has agreed not to continue their relationship. The evidence for Carol's homosexuality is so strong that she capitulates to Harge rather than having the details of her behavior aired in court. She submits to an agreement that gives him full custody of Rindy and leaves her with limited supervised visits. Though heartbroken, Therese returns to New York to rebuild her life. Therese and Carol arrange to meet again. Therese still hurt that Carol abandoned her in a hopeless attempt to maintain a relationship with Rindy, declines Carol's invitation to live with her. They part, each headed for a different evening engagement. Therese, after a brief flirtation with an English actress that leaves her ashamed, quickly reviews her relationships. Quote, loneliness swept over her like a rushing wind, end quote, and goes to find Carol, who greets her more eagerly than ever before. And that's kind of the end dot dot question mark, which, which we will discuss the ending because it was a big thing back yonder. Okay, Tom. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> did you like The Price of Salt? I really did. Uh... <gasps> Tom! <laughs> I, I, my jaw is on the floor. I'm so excited. Tom! I, it, it, it was a little slow to start, yeah. but both characters are intriguing and really flawed. Yeah. And I was invested in to see how this relationship comes out. And once they got on the road, it got it, it just it got better. Like, I think once I got about maybe the third of the way in, I finished really, really quickly. I, I was really, really enjoying it. And then something we'll also talk about. I liked the fact they both survived the book. Yeah. I, no, I was I was like, we are. Yeah. I'm so used to the barrier gaze trip. I was waiting for something like that to happen. And when it didn't, I was very satisfied. And then actually she wrote that in her afterward that she did not. The, yeah, the edition I have has an afterward by the author yeah. and she she wanted to make she didn't want the tragedy to happen. So no, but I, I really did enjoy this. Wow, I'm happy to hear it. I too, I will agree with you that I think it, it starts out slowly and there might be some other moments that you're like, why might this be in there? But I do feel like it's really beautifully written and with, uh, I guess, mannerisms or behaviors and what people are saying, like uh, I was constantly like just trying to figure figure these characters out and, mm -hmm. and understand them and, and was invested. And I think even by the end, I don't fully understand them or you know how why they were acting the way they were acting but i i think that's what makes it a, a, a really strong novel so wow tom i am surprised but pleasantly so 
<laughs> you know, the funny yeah. thing is too with the, with the with the death and the tragedy and stuff is the only other the or I, I'm sure I've read stuff where two women go on a road trip or something like this, but the one that always pops into my head is the movie Thelma and Louise. Right. So which yeah. does end tragically, so and, and is a lot more uh, you know, action packed. But um, this is not Thelma and Louise. <laughs> it is not Thelma and Louise. But similar in the fact of like a mature kind of world-weary woman versus uh, someone who is, you know, a bit naive and, yeah. and still yeah, coming into things. So I actually, you know, there are some like specific episodes I want to talk about and, and I have a few questions. But I feel like this episode might be a little different because I do really want to dive into these characters and do more of a character study. Okay. Um, so I think it might be a little. So that's why, you know, I was looking at this outline. I'm like, it's not the greatest outline, but I'm really interested in just talking about these characters and kind of sorting them out. So just heads up to you as well as heads up to the audience that it, it might seem like a different format. But I will talk about, again, I do have some questions. So with Therese's name, uh, it does look like Therese or Teresa. Uh, my mother's name is Teresa, spelled with a T-H but with an A at the end. But ha I wondered, you know, as a reader, because I remember the first time not knowing, not knowing how to pronounce that name, thinking about my mom and just pronouncing it that way. But how are you pronouncing Therese's name prior to her explanation of it to Carol during their first lunch? And do you feel like there's any significance that it is here during their lunch when she's talking to Carol that you get that first proper pronunciation? I was saying Therese. Okay. Um, because I think that's the New York Italian in me. <laughs> okay. I think the significance is that, and, and this this will get into the the next question if you're going to ask them in order. Uh, Therese is, is very young; she's 19, and Carol is in her 30s. Do we do we get a specific age for Carol? Is we just assume she's yeah. in her 30s? Yeah, just in her 30s. All right. So there is, and and Carol is. You know, her infatuation with Carol is, is really, really strong at, at the beginning. And Carol is sophisticated, right? You know, she is a woman of society. Like, she just gives off that air. So I would imagine that she is – she's doing it to be correct so she won't be – you know, so, so that Carol pronounced her name correctly. But I also think she's doing it to sound – because Therese, Therese sounds way more sophisticated and mature – than Therese, you know, or, or yeah. Teresa or something like that. Not that those names are immature, but it, it has an air about it. And I think that she yeah. was trying to impress or make a good impression. Yeah. And I mean, she even comments that it, you know, it's a unique name and its origins and everything. I also feel like it's kind of the start of like, that is the moment where they're learning about each other. And so mm -hmm. really the beginning that we need to take note of who Therese is, is in, in the presence of Carol, which is both good and bad because you want a character to stand on their own and have their own identity. But the fact that she did talk about her boarding school days a little bit leading up to that and like you get to know her a little bit, the fact that we don't get a pronunciation is just very interesting. So I, I feel like, man, this is – we get – some like little build up and background, but really, okay, this is when the story starts is, and we're introduced to who this person is with with the other lead. So I I found that pretty poignant, mm -hmm. and and I would agree with you that I probably yeah called it uh, Teresa or yeah Teresa. Yeah, yeah. The next question. So we did. Well, I think I chose this one. Yeah, you chose called um, me by your name. 
I've I've been choosing the the queer novels this year. So we did Call Me by Your Name recently, and that is another May December romance. He was I think sixteen seventeen, yeah, and uh, his lover was thirty two. He's about double his age. Do you feel like this one that we're reading now, Carol, is more complex? I'll start with that question. I have some like weird I questions within this one. Don't know. And you can take complex because that could be like anything. Yeah, so I guess interpret complex and in, in whatever way you mean. The consequences for this relationship in the context of the world of this book are more complex than the ones for call my in call me by your name. There's a significant risk that Carol is taking and Therese is taking um, by being in this relationship by virtue of the fact that it's the 1950s or four, late 40s or whatever. Just the, Carol's going through this divorce and everything. So there's, there's a lot on the line here. I think there's that. Um, as far as the back and forth between the two of them, maybe it's on par. I mean, it's a t- it's a kind of a different relationship between between our two characters and call me by your name, even though one is one is f- more f- infatuated with the other. Yeah. I, I think, I think this one is more complex in ways, but then, then in other ways, they're just kind of on the same level. Yeah. It is interesting when you think about a comparison between the two, how the older party seems to be more responsible. Uh, if we want to say that, or more aware of the, consequences than the mm-hmm. younger party because Oliver was the one to be like, we need to stop, you know, let's be responsible. This is a thing to do. And yeah. Carol, of course, is, um, she does have a lot riding on it. Uh, with Therese, it seems like she she doesn't necessarily care. I mean, I remember she at one point, I think, puts her arm through Carol's and Carol's like not in public. And I think Elio also is, is kind of uh, free spirited with, with his uh, sexuality as we kind of talked about. Um, though there is that moment of being self-conscious. I think about, you know, the time frame. I guess maybe it's comparable with Call Me By Your Name. It was, it was really encapsulated in that one summer. And I think it flash forwarded as well. But here it's christmas season and then goes out a little bit more and then it seems to flash forward maybe a couple years where therese is more stable but yeah i would say it's it's slightly more complex i think given what you said just that there are some really serious consequences that are happening and the other all the other parties that are involved in it as well because with Oliver and Elio, you had his parents, but they weren't really involved in the relationship. Whereas mm-hmm. with this, you have Richard, you have Danny, you have Harge, Rindy, Abby. He's got like all these people with their, their fingers in the relationship, which is interesting. Do you have any, so this is kind of a, a psychology question, but do you feel like any of Therese's attraction to Carol has to do with the issues that she has with her own mother? Yeah, I think so. I mean, or at least on on some level, there there is that that she's looking for that sort of fulfillment or figure. I know that's a very stereotypical type of thing, but yeah, I would say that there's certainly something there. And do you see anything sinister in the relationship? <sighs> sinister? No. Okay. I thought there were times where I was thinking that Carol was stringing her along or using her just for the companionship and really Mm -hmm. didn't love her because Carol is a little bit aloof 
here and there. Uh, just the way she presents herself. So yeah. I was just wondering if she, if is, is Carol as invested in this as Therese is, but I didn't see anything. Sinister implies like to me, sinister implies wanting to cause harm. Yeah. I didn't see anything of that in, in Carol. Um, just sort of a, maybe she's using her, maybe she's stringing her along a little bit. Yeah, I guess that's probably as far as uh, we could say. I guess I always, I mean, I think our hackles are often up, and and perhaps mm -hmm. because I literally did just watch May December that film, um, but that one is, I don't, well, could we call it sinister? I mean, as a twelve year old boy, I guess it probably falls in that definition. But I think our hackles are always up when there is an age gap. Yeah. Even if one of the parties is an adult and of legal age, I think we're always like cautious. And so I'm always just on guard. And, and um, so initially, I think you're right. The fact that what, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, almost, is it gaslighting? Like, it, what's poor Therese doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and Carol is just, yeah, aloof is 100% the word. I was thinking about her today. I'm like, yeah, that is, is it cold? No, it's aloof that she plays we, potentially for good reason. I think we can talk about that in, in her character section. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as far as I know, and, and uh, I think that road trip, you start to see more of Carol, but the most you see of character Carol's emotions is when they have tea at the end of the novel and she like really puts it out there. And so I think at that point, even if you did have some wrong feelings about what was going on, I think you realize that, Oh, this was, she did really care about her. Yeah. I think, I think we've been subject to too many books and movies where there, there is a May December romance and it's yeah. an older man and a younger woman. And the, a lot of them go down the trope of the controlling over man, older man, who like keeps the, the, the kind of the, the prisoner trophy wife type of trope. And so I think we're, we're very conditioned culturally to expect that to happen or that, or that she's eventually going to leave that older person for somebody her own age or something. So, so the idea that this played out the way it is, is did is just a little bit foreign to us because we're not used to it. Yeah. And very true. Well, let's talk about, I think, these characters before we go on. And there are certainly some sub-questions I have that can relate to them. So let us begin with the person whose mind we are in most of the time, and that's Therese. So how would you, as if we're on a comic podcast, uh, yeah, how would you describe Therese's character? What are your, your thoughts of her? And as like a an initial sub-question... I feel like there's a reverse harem going on, which uh, for people who don't know is a, I guess it's a romance trope. It's it's a, an anime trope for sure because a harem would be the idea that there's like this really attractive guy and then all these girls are vying for him and he'll pick someone. And the reverse harem, of course, is like, oh, it's the opposite of that. So, you know, there's a, a female and all these guys are vying for her attention. And it seems like that is here if only because, you know, Therese has Richard that she's dating with quotation marks, I'll say, because we'll probably talk about that. Danny at one point hits on her. I, I don't know about Phil. I can't put my finger on him or his motivations. Yeah. So thoughts on. T Is Danny the one who tries to, like, force himself on her? Yeah, he's the one. OK, who, yeah. I couldn't remember who that was. Yep. OK, she. Uh, yeah, she visits him and. and uh, mm hmm. In his apartment and yeah 
So character of Therese, what do you, how would you describe her? And then, yeah, thoughts on this maybe reverse harem or if there is one. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously she's young. Uh, there's an immaturity there. There is a naivete. I wondered how long she was going to stick around in New York City before she made it or not before going back to wherever she came from. Because mm. it does have the feel of a person just starting out and her situation is a bit is a bit um, tenuous. But at the same time, there is a streak of independence in her. She's not living with Richard. As far as I can remember, I think she's got her own place. Correct. Yeah. And she has her own. She has her own job. She has a good. She does have a good head on her shoulders. And you know, going after Carol the way she does is bold, especially considering that she keeps running into Carol's best friend Abby, who's clearly jealous. Yeah. And is low key trying to break the two of them up at some points and then just insist that they don't and stuff like that. But there's a, you know, it, it's not, it's not like right out front, you know, but, but at the same time, there's a little bit of like Abby obviously being jealous and, and, and Ter- Therese holds her own in a way. And I think she really does mature over the course of the novel because I think she, um, I mean, you, you can, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think she develops more and more agency as the book goes on. I would agree. I, I think she even has a speech, right, that she just seems to say yes to everybody. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of finally begins to, to say no. She doesn't do it directly, I think, to – well, maybe she does to Richard. Um, mm-hmm. Though I think her running away and not answering his letters is kind of a <laughs> direct way. But when she says no to Carol living with her initially, because we know that that probably turned around – I was proud of her because yeah. Yeah, she does seem to go with the flow and, and doesn't seem to have her own – you called her intelligent, which I agree. But I feel like she almost just like did not have her own mind and and would just kind of do do her own things. And even though you said she had a good job, I would argue that her job is a bit unstable because she spends a lot of the time trying to get – some of these stage designing jobs and she mm-hmm. has some lines on it but it's just not not a, a lot of them are are working out for her that i meant the department store oh, job the is department fairly store stable yes, yes, i mean yes, it's yes, not yes, the best yeah. thing in the world and it's no, a day job yeah. Yeah. um actually the thing about the job of the stage designing and we're talking about agency and stuff is that i think up until a certain point most of those jobs are one of the guys gets it for her. Like, you know, she yeah. is relying on these men to get her this work. And she does start turning that down too, which I think keys into that um, sense of independence and agency that we get. She is such, I don't know. I, I just cannot put my finger on her because she has grown up basically by herself. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder where that comes from that she kind of uh does not take the lead that she's just following other people because you would think uh, maybe maybe it's she's tired maybe she's tired she's tired and a little bit scared too maybe yeah. you know this is this is a you're right the theater isn't exactly uh growth industry <laughs> like stable work you know yeah so um you have to take a lot of eat a lot of crow and you have to deal with a lot of egos so maybe she is a little bit timid too Besides the easy answer, which is, of course, that she doesn't love him, but just your thoughts on how she interacts with Richard. 
She's not very touchy-feely with him. If she ever is, it's like shocking to him. Do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think that's her personality? Is it just something that's like, well, this points, this makes more sense why she has an attraction to Carol because men is, men is just not her thing? Uh, I think what you just said is a little bit of it. I know we're coming in toward the end of the relationship with Richard, so we really didn't see much about the beginning of the relationship and how they met and stuff. But, you know, this is 19, this is written, what, 40, 52? Yeah. 51, 52. You know, this is an, this is an era where, where you're, you're a woman out in the world. Um, the, expectation is to get a man right you know i mean not, i mean i'm not saying that's right but i mean that was that would have been the expectation so her getting into a relationship with him no matter how no matter how much she's just like i really don't care is i take it as she's doing because that's what you're supposed to do and you know he's also got connections and some of the other guys have connections too so there's yeah. there's that angle but i just think it's like you know she's staying with him because you know what else am i going to do i'm supposed to have a boyfriend right you know and that's the idea that you would be alone as a single woman in this era was not frowned upon but it wasn't exactly as common as yeah. we would see it today well, I mean, it's still frowned upon, but yeah, uh, yeah not perhaps not as this is, bad this is, now as it is. This is a few decades before the era of Carrie Bradshaw. You know, what I mean, yeah, so yeah. we're we're not we're not going to get to to Therese is young enough to for that to be acceptable. But before a certain age, the expectation is she, she finds a man and gets married and goes off to wherever in his house and has his children. So if she were Carol's age and independent and not and single, that would be seen as weird by some. For sure. Uh, I do wonder, I mean, kind of in the future, what, what that looks like for them um, mm-hmm. being roommates, uh, which is something that we can discuss because I do have a question about her staying over in Jersey. But it, it's almost like she was just – walking through life as a zombie i think until carol came about because of yeah maybe her indecisiveness and not wanting to fully commit to richard and yeah like you said going with the flow and and doing what she feels like is expected of her i think that trip the will they won't they go on this european trip is like very Mm -hmm. symbolic of their relationship and that He's very gung-ho for it, and she's very wishy-washy. Like, sometimes she might be going on the trip, and then other times she might not be. And finally, you know, with with uh, going on this trip with Carol, she finally says, no, I'm not going on this trip. So I feel like Carol inadvertently kind of opens up something. Just like, yeah, fierceness of spirit maybe that we don't necessarily see. Um, yeah. And there is an episode with, with the kite that I want to talk about. But uh, there is a quote that Carol says about Therese on my copy. It's 177. Uh, they're in the midst of their trip. They had gone, they had stopped somewhere and there was like this little Holland village that they see. And she was very excited about it. And Carol asked about the, the train set and, and what Therese liked about it and everything. And Carol says, I wonder if you'll really enjoy this trip. You so prefer things reflected in a glass, don't you? You have your private conception of everything, like that windmill. It's practically as good as being in Holland to you. I wonder if you'll even like seeing real mountains and real people. Do you think that that is a a true observation or an accurate observation of Therese? 
or or what do you think Carol is getting getting at? I mean, I don't know if Therese is hurt in the next. She felt crushed, yeah. Accused her of lying. Uh, just your thoughts on that particular observation. I read that as Carol's poorly trying to get her out of her shell mm. or out of her bubble. Bubble is yeah. probably the better word than shell because Therese is, you know, is not of the world, right? So she's, and, and, you know, appropriately so, she's a set designer. So she's seeing everything encased in, in, in a certain, you know, she designs things that are encased a certain uh, amount of space. So, yeah, but I think she, this is her comment in, on the fact that Carol, that not Carol, uh, Ter- Therese has so little experience in life, mm-hmm. at least in her mind. Yeah. Perhaps accusing her of letting life happen to her mm-hmm. rather than actually living. Yeah, she's like a – she's basically – I think in a sense she's calling her a bystander. Yeah, I can see that. And, and it is interesting. There was a um, conversation earlier just in regards to to her sets and everything and saying that, you know, you're a bit amateurish because uh, everything's very subjective to her and how she interprets the play is how she decides to design it. So we do get some – views on that so then you know going back to that sinister question I'll I'll take that out of there but because she's so young and doesn't have this world experience and is pretty naive do you have any concerns that an older woman would take a younger woman Uh, because it's almost like I don't want to say she's a child but it there are certain aspects to her that are childlike and so that's why I do wonder, I don't know if you use the term take advantage of, you did say use, but just to go back to that question, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts then? like, do you change your mind if you're thinking about it in that way? A little bit, like I said, I, I think my, my view of, as the novel went on, I started to see that Carol's feelings for Therese were more genuine than I'd originally realized. Mm-hmm. So like, it's almost like I had my own guard up, like thinking this woman is taking advantage of her and using her for whatever fling she wants to have. And cause it, it cause it did kind of read like that in parts too, especially because of the way Carol, you know, acts, but this and some of the other things do suggest that no, she, she genuinely feels for, for her. It's like, she wants to do this for her. She wants to make her more of the person she should be. And I think that also tie, actually ties into your question about uh, the, the mother thing yeah, and, and such. And um, it's not creepy in that way. Like, you know, the father figure, mother figure way. Um, but I think she is, it's almost like a mentoring statement. Um, and I think there are genuine, this is a, a genuine feeling out of Carol as backhanded as it sounds and you don't i mean if i drop the word grooming you don't think that that is we're not getting there because you said mentoring no you see this is grooming gets thrown around a lot these days by a certain segment of the population i don't think the race is young enough for this to be grooming she's also She's also kind of she's already on her own. She's already an independent yeah. person. You know, the, the, she is always she, she is nineteen. She is an adult, 
yeah, I guess you could interpret it as a little bit creepy. And maybe there are some things that Carol's doing that you're just like side eyeing. But the couple in Call Me By Your Name, that skirts the line of grooming more than this does. Okay. And and I do wonder because there seems to be currently, I feel like it has started in the past couple years, this – and I don't know who is kind of the line of – maybe it's that guy whose last name is Tate. Oh, yeah. I know who you're talking about. The, like some really toxic ideas of relationships and I think younger women in particular are being brought up in social media and I'm concerned that, you know, it's – which I think it's already been like proliferated and everything. But the idea that these men should go for like, you know, untouched young girl you know girls or young women so that they can mold them and like everything and so i do worry about that because but i know that that's not what you're saying but when i look at therese like she is it's funny because she comments on some of these other couples that she finds is boring but on the outside if you just give like a little stock character picture of therese i would almost say that she's a little boring like there's not much personality until she gets with carol and then we start to see her Mm -hmm. a little bit more as well um so i think carol is a good influence but i do also wonder if there is something that's not as good you know for someone like could you not be like this on your own without carol so it's like this i'm trying to like balance or find out where it is i don't know if it's as i feel like you find it more straightforward probably yeah um the thing you're talking about about the men and the getting women so you can mold them and stuff yeah i think that's a extension or evolution of something i remember back when i was a teenager i remember being in a a class that was part literature, part women's studies. And the professor was talking about how she asked about her other classes about, she asked some of the guys like, uh, why is a woman, why is a young woman's virginity so important to you? And one of the guys straight up said this, I'm not kidding. It's misogynistic as hell. Nobody likes damaged goods and creepy. (laughs) I don't know who said it because she was said it from another class. She didn't see who said it. But that mentality of, and I think purity culture is tied up in that. There, there's all. Yeah. This is a whole. This is its own podcast episode. Oh no, um, for sure. But yeah. that whole idea of, of men and and like the purity of these women, and like you know, and there is a, you know, if you look at things in the mid two thousands, there was this whole thing about like certain actresses and they turning eighteen and being nineteen, and the the idea of jail. It's it's a whole weird misogynistic culture and such. I didn't get that vibe in this, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. Um, So maybe I was looking at a little more straightforward. Yeah. But I I think I use the word mentoring. Yes. Rather than, yeah. Because I don't think she wants to groom her. I think she wants to guide her. And I think there's a, there's a difference. Yeah. And, and I know that there's that one portion where, Carol gets annoyed. She seems to get, you know, a little bit annoyed of frequently during their their journey there, but says, you know how many times I have to ask you what you're like thinking about or whatever. So it does. I mean, you know, she doesn't just want someone who's like sitting there and yeah, being a bystander, but actually cares what she has to think. And, And once Carol, I think, gets to know other aspects of Therese, she is, I think, impressed by her mm-hmm. so it's just maybe it's just the writing that uh, again up until that point we're like who is this character who is therese and then all of a sudden we start to see 
her a bit more. I think it's interesting that Highsmith makes it clear that Therese has had sex before. Mm -hmm. I think it's both as a way to show, well, something wasn't necessarily right. So this, oh, this makes you know more sense that Therese is probably a lesbian. But also, I think it reduces the chance that we would see Carol as a predator because of, you know, this older woman going after True. this young virgin. So I think she's able to uh, do that. And also, you know, if Gertrude Stein is, is in fact mentioned, which she was, uh, maybe we get some, some women's lib as well that, you know, Therese is, again, independent and um, kind of leading her own life. I was just about to say there's something very feminist about that. Yeah. Um, especially in 1951 where – sex outside of marriage, you know, the, I mean, for all I know, it was way more common than, you know, what you're led to believe. But my yeah. impression of the 1950s is very, my impression of what the, what the expectations were for women in the fifties is very in tune with the suburban, how chaste, how swipe, you know, the, the, the idea that you would save yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the independent woman having sex with a man, not necessarily enjoying, you know, like, and, 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 and then going on and having sex with a woman. Yeah. I think that there's something real bit progressive about it. The other thing is too, when you're saying that like, you know, Carol isn't grooming her Therese having this about her before she even meets Carol does, I maybe signal that she is this independent person. She's just a little young and she's starting out and there's, she, there's this potential for her to be a very strong independent woman, no matter who she's with. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe Carol sees that in her as well. Yeah. Oh, also, I just don't know how you would, I mean, I don't know how you do it now, frankly, but how do you signal back then that, well, I guess without having a certain appearance that you're queer so I think a lot of it too yeah. with this with these conversations and like not sure where either is standing is like very much the reader is like in there because I don't know <laughs> Therese has these feelings but she doesn't know what Carol thinks of her and probably Carol's like I don't know if this girl likes me yeah, likes me too I, so it's like very yeah confusing. yeah because because neither of them are I guess the only way you would signal queerness would be if you were like it, or the character would signal queerness is if is if she was written as a stereotype of a yeah. lesbian or something a certain butch stereotype or something that like that the way she's described like oh of course she is you know in the same way that homosexual men could be written in a way or portrayed in a way that's effeminate and that's the stereotype playing into leaning into a stereotype or trope about them these women are just very um they're not Carol's not ordinary. I mean, they're not ordinary in the sense that they're boring, but they are they're straightforward in a mm -hmm. sense. Like you, there's nothing um, that they're every day. So, and I think that's another advantage of of the book here. Yeah, and I doubt they're going down the Christopher Street to hang out. So. No, probably not. Uh, there is an episode with a kite. It spans a couple pages. I think she was spending time, Therese was spending time with Richard's whole family, but then uh, they go out to fly this kite. And it's, I guess I just don't understand what's going on in terms of why Therese has this outburst. 
because Richard wants the kite to just, he wants to cut the string. It has extended as far as possible. Therese finally has control of it, and he wants to cut it. And she says, no, don't. And then he comes running over laughing, and she is angry and says, don't. Are you crazy? Therese jerked the stick sideways out of his reach, speechless with anger and amazement. There was an instant of fear when she felt Richard might really have lost his mind, and then she staggered back the pole gone the empty stick in her hand you're mad she yelled at him you're insane and Richard says it's only a kite and Therese looked in vain even for the dangling string why did you do it her voice was shrill with tears it was such a beautiful kite it's only a kite Richard repeated I can make another kite do you have <laughs> any insight as to her reactions is is the kite or the cutting or any of that do you think it's symbolic what, what is going the very obvious symbolism is that like the kites carol and letting mm -hmm. her go and that okay. sort of thing. You know, yeah. you could go down that road. Mm -hmm. There's something really belittling in this moment between him and her where like he is not taking her seriously. Yeah. It's, it's almost as if he played a joke, a cruel joke on her and told her to get over it. It was just a joke, you know? Yeah. And something that was mean-spirited. I don't know if it's this is as mean-spirited. I think he's just being an immature boy. And he thinks it's funny. Because it'll be more fun that way. It really comes off as just incredibly immature. She is not in the moment. So I think there's that, too. The contrast of maturity of the two of them. And when he does it, she's just like, she's upset because of the way he's, just the way he's acting. Like, she told him not to do it. I didn't give you my consent to do this and he's doing it. And he's like, well, take it, you know, he's like, calm down, you know, and that yeah. sort of thing. So yeah, for once she, yeah, stood up to him. Mm -hmm. and so, that is know, true. She stood up to him for it. once. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's anything? I, I don't know if this is within her character, but do you feel like she's a character who prefers stability and control? And so at that moment, losing that was something that was fearful to her, like not being able to, I, I think to some degree, I think she's, I think that her going after Carol, the way she is a significant risk to her and she's very, very nervous through the whole thing, you know, it is scary. And I think she's used to having, I don't think she's a control freak, but I think no. she's used to having control because like you said, she essentially has been living on her own for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, her relationship with her mother is terrible. She was essentially sent away to a school. So so being able to control those moments in your life, I guess, is what you strive for so that you don't feel like you're spiraling. Yeah. And um Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of things are really out of her control anyways. Um, like all those jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in the current season of looking for my hopefully future, you know, permanent job. And it's just like now after interviews, I'm like, I've done what I could. It's yeah. like literally out of my control now. And so a lot of it, you know, she reaches out to Harkavy and, and all these other people and tries to make these connections and – it's kind of out of her control. I also think of that meat, the meat that was stolen from her locker. Like mm. that that's similar, I think, episode of just like she had, you know, some yeah. meat that she had purchased purchased and she was gonna make a dinner and then someone stole it. Yeah. So uh yeah. 
and it's it's very i think you're right about the the control thing she was talking about uh that you were talking about there and by the way yeah it sucks to have a major decision in your life or a major thing about your life or your career or whatever in somebody else's hands Mm-hmm. You know, and and you've done all you can, but it ultimately <laughs> is up to that other person. It's just like yeah. that's frustrating. Yeah. With the meat in the locker, that's very schoolyard, right? That's very junior high-ish in a sense, right? Bullying type of thing. Again, she's trying. She doesn't want to be a child anymore. Yeah. So maybe she's around too many people who are who are uh, who are children. And I feel like, would you say that, do you think the heartbreak and the abandonment abandonment by Carol when Carol flies back and she's still in the Midwest really is like the catalyst for her growing up? Because we see she has a physical transformation and also she has like a, a stable job the next time that we see her. Um, obviously, she stands up for herself and says no to Carol. Do you think that that is the catalyst being left by Carol? I think so. You know, it's it's a... Your heart, she has she basically has her heart broken. Mm-hmm. Um, her life isn't in shambles per se, but yeah, she's she's at the bottom at that point because she's been just run over by this woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just her picking it up and being like, no, I'm going to take control of the situation. And yeah, I, she finds her own strength and some way when we see her again she's a lot more way more sure of herself yeah i did lose a a track i don't know if it was a continuity issue but when they have that tea she's like suddenly 21 (laughs) or at the party like her thing was dropped i'm like i don't think that much time has passed but uh i just went with it but some time has passed We'll go now to Carol, who is our our other lead. What is your analysis of her character? How would you describe her? And then two of her immediate relationships that we can talk about is with Harge. I guess we could say three. Harge, Abby, and Rindy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how much of her character do you think is de- is determined by her relationship with these people? Hmm. Carol... Yeah, Carol, at least when I first meet her, is a bit annoying uh, because she's so almost like Gatsby-like in that sort of bluster, right? And um, But she's also very fascinating to me. And, you know, whether or not she would return this woman's affections is, is a little up in the air at first. And then, you know, they talk about this relationship that she has, this this friendship she has with Abby and then her, you know, relationship with the daughter and everything. I think that we use the word aloof. I think she's also very guarded mm-hmm. in that sort of way. And you talk about control. I think she wants to control that narrative because things are not happening the way she wants them. I mean, she's in the middle of a pretty bad divorce. And so if you can hold on to something like that, you're going to, you're going to be able to do, you're going to do the best you can. Yeah. She is, I feel like until that divorce comes through, she doesn't have freedom Mm -hmm. to kind of do what she wants. I think the most freedom she might have is the road trip. But then of course, once the private investigator is discovered, then it's like, oh shoot. Now yeah. it's back to back to all of that, and now I've got to protect myself. I can't be happy necessarily uh, because 
Well, I, I should be careful about that because she's still, I mean, she loves Rindia. You can tell, I think, how much she loves her daughter. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, if she were fully free, I think she could have her daughter as well as her relationship. Yeah, the I would agree with you. Did you say that she was a bit annoying in the beginning? Yeah, she, yeah. she got on my nerves a little bit. Especially because when I when I can't sort somebody out or they're, like, not putting out – enough like emotion or Mm -hmm. like giving giving me some stuff and i'm like trying to bring them out i just can't it because the energy needs to be equal for me and so i just felt like carol's giving us nothing um i don't know what's going on therese obviously is infatuated with her but carol is just like i mean she says some of these statements like my angel flung out of space i think is is the quote of how she you know where did she come from that sort of thing and calls her darling and so there are some of these great moments but the other it's like i therese how could you do it like i would not be able to pursue this relationship because she was just like really putting out more than the return energy was and i think part of it does have to do with her relationship with harge because i just feel like harge is this overbearing man and probably just like really kind of pushed her down and uh, made her smaller stature than her actual personality is and the other one is, I think, because of safety, which, you know, just goes back to this quote. Well, who knows what how are you supposed to know? So Carol is like, uh, I think maybe she likes me, but maybe she does, you know, very high school. But it is dangerous times. And she has a lot riding on the quote unquote morality of her life. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there's certainly something with that. But we get to see her more on that trip. So I think that's certainly uh, the best part. And then of her character and then that letter we get to see a little bit more with that and then like i said i think that that dinner uh or the tea and then seeing her reaction of seeing therese at the very end of the novel we actually get to see something so the hope is you know with with her independence that we'll get to see a bit more because she'll have her own job she's going to be a purchaser of furniture her own apartment and then who knows you know if therese is going to be there so we get to see a buildup of hers. Would you say that um, the development of both characters is about the same speed? There, there is certain an, certainly an event that kind of tips them over into behaving differently. And I think with Carol, it's the the culmination of the divorce, especially the custody agreement. Yeah. I think that maybe Therese moves at a little bit of a faster pace than her, but that's because she's also younger yeah. and more of a puppy dog. Um, <laughs> Carol, there's something sexy about the um, about the aloofness, about the not letting the emotion show, about the distance, about the way she presents herself to Therese in the beginning of their relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like it's yeah, it's it's a, she. You could tell she cares, but she's trying to pretend that she doesn't, or she's just very good at showing that she. She isn't so the uninterest. She's the uninterested in it thing makes her attractive in a sense yeah. too. I Carol is definitely definitely like like I would say Kay Blanchett is to be honest mm-hmm. like a, a a bi icon of just like anyone anyone is gonna have attraction towards Carol. I think um, there's just yeah some quality about her. I definitely got that uh, from the pages. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a competition 
in Therese's mind between herself and Rindy for Carol's affections? I'm not entirely sure. Um, I feel that like, I feel that like when Carol does make the decision to go back to New Jersey because she is trying to salvage her ability to see her daughter, Carol, uh, not Carol, uh, Therese feels like she's lost, mm-hmm. but I don't, Maybe she does see a competition. I don't think she's. I don't get the feeling that she's jealous of Carol's relationship with her daughter. There, I mean, maybe it's just me. When I saw that that's the decision Carol made, it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That you would choose your child over this. What we don't know if you think it's a fling or not. You know um, that you know this this other woman. So, uh, so for me, it was, it was just a little logical thing, but I think, you know, for, like I said, I think Teresa feels like she lost something or she did lose some sort of competition, but I never thought that she was jealous in the way that like maybe Abby was jealous of, of Teresa and Carol. Well, Therese, I never got that sense either, especially because Therese asks about Rindy and Mm -hmm. I think it's of a type of person who's actually interested in trying to engage in that rather than someone who's trying to sort out those feelings. But there are two moments, and it might just come with this theme of mothers and daughters that I think we've already established, and we know that Highsmith had that hang up as well. There are two moments, and I wish I had the page, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. One time, uh, which must have been after Carol left her, she says... Carol loves Rindy more than me. Mm-hmm. And the other, which I remember like stopping and thinking, if I had a partner and they asked me, do you love me more than blank? I'd be like, well, kind I of love you in different it? ways. Then there's like, I feel like it's a false comparison. Do I like yeah. a child versus a romantic partner? Yeah. But then later, I think probably towards the very end, Therese then says she loves me more, or she chose me. Maybe that was the proper thing. Mm-hmm. She chose me over Rindy. Mm. So I don't know. There's something going on there. I, I would agree that it's probably not jealousy, but it might be some sort of competition that gets into that kind of mothery psychology. Yeah, I think you're right. Anything else with Carol that you want to talk about? No, not as a character. Okay. I guess we can get into some of the some of the plot stuff too. Some of the plot, yeah. Oh, I guess still connected with Carol is that Therese sleeps over at her place in New Jersey, and this is prior to their sexual relationship, so it is platonic. I think there are motherly overtones with it because you like you know, tells her to go into bed and makes her warm milk and things like that. So there's, you know, some stuff like that. Did you find anything odd about that? Or do you feel like it's just a sign of a different time where, you know, a friend would come a calling and, you know, is late and, you know, just stay over? I, I did think that. I was like, maybe this is just of the time because um, it was weird <laughs> to me. I was like, you're just staying over here at her house. And I'm like, I realize you live like – I'm like, well, maybe it's way it is way out in New Jersey, and maybe you missed the last train, and or it's just you know getting home is too inconvenient tonight. So yes, the over she has the space. It's a necessary for the plot because the maid finds yeah. a letter, a love letter that Therese wrote 
for Carol mm-hmm. in addition to the check that Carol was going to write for her. She's like, I don't want your money. But the she finds like the love letter and that's one of the catalysts for the private investigator or the, the whole, you know, the what's going on there because the, the, um, the maid cells are out. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was strange to me, but then I was just like, well, I don't know. I just kind of like went with it. Yeah. I felt like it was more realistic once they got to know each other, but I think the yes. first time that she stayed over was literally like the weekend after they had lunch for the first time. Yeah, it was, it moved, the, the it moved fast. It did move fast. Yeah. And so part of me was like, this is odd, but another part, which I guess is that the trope of lesbians or like the U-Haul lesbians were after the second, <laughs> the second date, they're moving in. Yeah. But I also thought back to, you know, our, our, your favorite genre of, you know, 18th, 17th, 19th century uh, <laughs> English literature where, you know, you would travel with like an older person potentially and mm-hmm. see different parts of England, maybe an older aunt or something. And um, well, didn't that happen? Didn't Amy, she was with an aunt, I think, the elderly aunt in Little Women. Oh, maybe you haven't seen Red Little Women. But, you know, something like that. We're like, oh, yeah. So maybe that's just what people thought. But it's also 1950s, which is far removed from that particular thing. Yeah. So I did think it a bit strange. But no one else seemed to be questioning it, and the Florence didn't really, and um, Harge initially, I think, didn't think that anything was odd. But, yeah. And did, I don't... Did Richard comment on that? I don't recall. Richard didn't... I don't remember, but Richard is jealous and is like, what the heck is... What are you doing here? Like, you... Are, he he calls into question the the crush that... Therese has on Carol. Yeah. Maybe Abby questions what's going on a little bit too, because she seems to think this is all like BS and Carol, maybe Carol is taking advantage of her or something. But then again, like Therese can't get a read on Abby either. Yeah. And so there, but I think that's a jealousy thing. Um, Yeah. With Richard though, it's, I think he's just, I think he's annoyed because he's losing her yeah. to Carol. And she shows way more affection towards Carol than yes. with Richard. I don't know. There is a question I have to ask about Abby. But with the Richard, just to stay on that side, I wonder if he would have thought anything if she hadn't brought up, um, have you ever been in love with another boy? Hmm. If that conversation had not happened um which i don't know if it was during the kite thing or not but then he references it later and is like is that why you asked me that question and then talks about her school girl school girl crush so i wonder if she had never asked that question if he would have ever thought that there was something that's a good that's a good point and i didn't really think of that i thought that he is for being a jealous boyfriend does not seem homophobic in the sense that, that he would have that he's, he would never have Carol and, and Therese thrown in jail or anything like that. Um, his disapproval of the relationship seems to stem from jealousy because she was with him and not of a sort of perceived disgust over her being a lesbian what they're doing is I, in many ways back at this time, technically illegal 
Yeah. Um, and uh, which is how her Harge, you want to say Harge, Harge uh, gets what he wants. That's why he has the private investigator follow him. It's not just that she's having an affair with another person. It's the fact that she's with another woman and that's perceived in that society at the time as dangerous and you shouldn't allow these people around children and all of those you know negative stereotypes that are totally not true um but yeah i was i was impressed with the fact that richard that she just had wrote richard as just like yeah he's just jealous of this relationship yeah i would argue that harge is also jealous oh yeah i think harge is certainly jealous but i mean harge went down the road of I'm going to get you for what you're doing as opposed yeah. to Richard, who's who's upset, but at the same time is not, you know, reading her for her sins or something like that. Yeah, so. though he does say that I'm going to tell people, you know, when people ask, I'm going to tell them we're mm-hmm. not together anymore, which at first Trish shrugs and then later on she's like, you know what, it's not his right to talk about my relationship but you're right i mean even if we look at danny who's farther removed from the relationship he clocks it when he meets her i think in chicago Mm -hmm. on his way to california and says like it's because that woman isn't it and it's just like uh and they just have a conversation and he even asked her you know would you do it if you knew how it was going to turn out because obviously it turned out poorly yeah um and she said yeah so they just have like a level-headed conversation as if it were any other uh relationship so you are right it defies the times or Mm -hmm. the conventions of the times i suppose but again then again they're in the world of theater yeah well true and i think they're also like in or around the village yeah so that, I mean, the, the village, it, it, that remains in, in a big way a progressive space, yeah. especially when you're talking about the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. So it's, it wasn't surprising to me. Yeah. But and I still thought James it was pretty Joyce. cool. Sorry. And they're reading James Joyce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Gertrude uh, Stein. Yeah. In regards to Abby. It's interesting how she reacts as if this were a pattern of behavior that automatically Carol bringing a woman home signals like, oh, she must be starting something up, uh, which I feel like Therese is only the second person in uh, mm-hmm. Carol's relationships with women. Maybe that's just a way to see if she can scare Therese off. Mm. You know, like she always does this, you know, like this sort of – you know, she really like you, you know, it's very, very uh, uh, mean girl. Absolutely. In a sense. I guess just a couple questions about Richard. We talked about him a little bit already, but I, I just wonder, in a similar way of Carol giving Therese nothing, so if I were Therese, I'd be like, can't handle this. Richard gets nothing from Therese, really. And I don't mean sexually. I'm just saying, like, not much emotions mm-hmm. or, you know, it's just like she's a body. When And I just am like, why is he not cutting her loose? He says he loves her. Uh, so why do you think he continues on? And then um, why is Carol – I said what is Carol's fascination with Richard? But um, she – it's almost like she kind of pushes Therese towards Richard, like check up on him, answer his uh, telegram, 
give him a call. Uh, she wants to meet him. They have lunch together. Let's just go to this party instead of coming with me. It's all this stuff. So there are my two questions with Richard. Um, and if you want to talk about anything else in regards to Richard. I, I don't know why he doesn't cut her loose sooner. Okay. Maybe it, why she doesn't cut him loose. Maybe it's just they're just holding on to something that's there, okay. you know, and, and there's just like, well, we should stick around. We'll see what happens. Um, I wonder with Carol, if she's just being protective uh, because she knows the potential for this relationship with Therese to go yeah. completely wrong. And therefore, if it does go wrong, she can go back to Richard and things will be okay. Perhaps. I mean, that's the best I can come up with. Yeah. I also wondered if they were tests at all. Maybe. Yeah. To, to gauge, I guess, Therese's interest. Um, and then also, I guess it's a a gamble and because if you are making everything seem like it's on the up and up then there's no reason for someone to be suspicious yeah. whereas if if you never met carol and therese is only talking about carol then it's like what's going on here but because carol is is very warm and outward and uh she tells yeah go go on with him to your play uh then it doesn't seem as suspicious yeah. I I don't know either why he doesn't break up with her. He says he loves her. So I guess, you know, at face value, we can say that is the answer. I do wonder about that diatribe Therese has at the very end about he he just seems so unconcerned, I guess, with things that happen. You know, like if he if a job doesn't work out, then he'll just go on to another job. If painting doesn't work out, he'll do something else. And so yeah. she calls him on that. And this doesn't seem to be be that though because he you would think that at the first sign of pressure would be just like well whatever i'm just gonna go find another lady so it seems like she's the only thing in his life that he's kind of really locked down and is trying to stay consistent with which i don't he seems like an eligible guy seems like there are people around him so i i don't know exactly all we can say i suppose is maybe there's something about therese that makes him want to stay Maybe I think I think that's that's a this is good as an idea or point <laughs> as any. Yes, just another character that we can't put our finger on. Yeah, I think that's mostly it. I did have a question: sex versus love. Just there's this episode there, but I think I'll skip that. Um, just more character musings. I think it's just interesting once you read it. Uh, if you decide to, again, it's it's up to you whether you do that, given the the knowledge of the author's background. Mm -hmm. um, just the character's opinions on certain things of, of life. Um, I yeah. just found myself kind of pausing and considering what they were saying. It's a character driven book. And Absolutely. as opposed to, um, I mean, it has a plot, yeah, but the plot is not as important as the characters mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you framing the discussion in terms of those two characters was the best way to go about it because that's yeah. the most fascinating thing of it. Like whether what happens between the two of them, eh, yeah, we're, we're infatuated by that. But at the same time, we're like, it's these two specific people that we're, we're really, really attached to throughout the whole book. Absolutely. So I think I'll just end with the ending. Uh, so okay. it's of course shocking, as you said, that no one dies. I think there is a bit of a punishment I think no one gets off scot-free necessarily because the fact that Carol loses Rindy in the divorce, I think yeah. it might be like the punishment, but people are alive. And so this was very shocking for the time. Yeah. 
the ending uh, is a bit ambiguous. We don't know, like, their eyes lock. She goes to the place that Carol is. Therese goes after this party, and their eyes lock, and um, there's, like, upturned, slightly upturned lips, right? So there does seem to be some smiling involved, and that's how it ends. So we don't know. But would you, I mean, do you rate this as a positive ending, um, or do you feel like it's neutral, but we're okay with this neutrality? What are your thoughts on the the ending overall? I think you're right about Carol losing Rindy is the tragedy part of the of it. It's mm-hmm. not barrier yays, but at the same time, it being when it was set that if something hadn't happened in that regard, it wouldn't have been realistic. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like we knew about the private investigator. We knew he had the goods on them. They didn't hunt the guy down and kill him and bury the body. I mean, like, you know, he's like Harge. She knew going back to New Jersey that Harge won, right? Yeah. For lack of a better word. So that to me never struck me as um, too extreme. I mean, it's like, you know, just knowing the time. I knew she wasn't going to be able to keep um, keep Rindy in her life as much as she wanted to. I felt very satisfied with this ending. Whether mm-hmm. or not, I like, I kind of like the ambiguity of it. Like, how what are they going to do? Are they yeah. going to be together? How long are they are, are they going to live together in this apartment? You know, like we don't know what's going to happen. We know that maybe they're getting back together, especially since like the plot synopsis said she was ashamed of the of the. Kind of, kind of, sort of hookup she had at the party yeah. with the English actress. I don't know if I don't get the feeling she's ashamed. I think she's I just didn't kind think of like that I thought she was just kind of yeah. like turned off. Yeah, like she, she, like she's like I don't want her. Yeah, you know, like or it's just like well, she wanted she had been thinking she'd seen Carol and she'd been thinking about her and she'd been thinking of it being meaningful, and this is just another flame she didn't she didn't she wasn't really interested in this woman she was just doing that for whatever reason just kind of being let along that's why she's just like no but yeah i I like i i hope that they get back together and i hope that they stay together um i think this time around though it's it's two people who are a lot who are looking at each other on a lot more level ground than they were the first Mm -hmm. and i think that's pretty cool too yeah absolutely yeah, it does say that Carol saw her, seemed to stare at her incredulously a moment, while Therese watched the slow smile growing. Before her arm lifted suddenly, her hand waved a quick, eager greeting that Therese had never seen before. Therese walked toward her, and that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess a bit more uh, exuberance than we, yeah. we saw with Carol. But yes, yeah, we don't know. We know that they're alive, and uh, we don't know whether she ends up taking... Yeah, as you said, uh, I don't need to restate everything you said but that I think is just the fact that she's outwardly kind of showing <laughs> more, more emotion, emoting more than we had mm-hmm. seen. I think is a, a good sign. And you're right that they are, I think, more equals. Uh, obviously, not in age, but I think, I think that broken heart and that experience West for Therese has really helped her grow up. And yeah. now she has more of a, a stable job. And again, she can say no. So I think she is her own person. And then mm-hmm. Carol has a little bit more freedom. I think she says that kind of the quote is she doesn't she's she doesn't want to go against the grain. So, you know, not trying to force herself to be someone that she is not. I think she's finally able to do that. And she hasn't totally lost Rindy. Rindy she still gets to see her. I don't know what that looks like in the future when, you know, a child 
can understand things. What's yeah, Sparge going to do? Question. Is he going to try to kind of turn or poison Rindy against her? But yeah, overall, I, I would say that that's it's a nice it's a nice ending. Yeah. Oh, the issue. Oh, the actress there. That was an interesting episode, if only because I think we get a clue that Therese now has more of a clue because she had mentioned or it was mentioned at some point that she never had an attraction like this before. So she felt like it was just a Carol thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at that moment, I think she might realize like, oh, there are other people. So because she has an attraction, I think, you know, she and the actress, they kind of meet eyes and I think there's an understanding. But yeah, between the two of them. I think she's like, yeah, could have a meaningless connection. Go up to this party upstairs or go back to Carol, whom I love. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Tom, would you consider this required reading? Oh, this is tough considering now we what know. we were discussing about yeah. the author. Yeah. Because I would, right? I mean, I enjoyed it this much. And I think it's, you know, it's a queer romance that's very, very well written and um, very adult and uh, really, really worth reading. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, that's tough. That's yeah. tough. So I'm going to kind of hedge. Yeah, I would hedge as well. I mean, now you have to think about of the time, what sort of novel can you have that has um, like a more or less positive representation of homosexuality? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we do have now more representation. So I guess mm-hmm. you know, if you are looking to bring that into the classroom, then you could potentially find it. And I guess oh, if yeah. you're doing some sort of unit on uh, queer representation and its timeline, like you can at least mention it. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, it comes down to, I guess, your beliefs on whether, you know, yeah, you should give, give a platform or um, promote somebody whose beliefs might not align with your own Mm -hmm. um, or are damaging overall. So, yeah, it's hard. So I'll hedge with you. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we do have a little bit of feedback before I get to my selection for the next episode. They're both on the previous episode, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, One is a comment on our Facebook post from David Finn. It's, he says, one of my all-time fave books and book series. And then our scholastic book buddy, Robert Ward, had a lot to say. Uh, he pointed us to a few things, a 1979 animated, animated adaptation that was directed by Bill Melendez. Uh, Bill Melendez is most famous for directing all of the Peanuts animated shows like uh, Charlie Brown Christmas and Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, etc. He also – Robert also posted a link to various audiobooks in the series, which include narration from Derek Jacoby, Kenneth Branagh, and Patrick Stewart. Now, regarding the question about the reading order of the Chronicles of Narnia, Robert gives us this uh, two-paragraph excerpt, which includes a quote from C.S. Lewis himself. It says, in 1957, an 11-year-old boy named Lawrence King was preparing to read the Narnia books for a second time. Lawrence wondered if he should reread them chronologically, but his mother felt that he should stick with the original published order. So Lawrence wrote a letter to the author and received this response. I think I agree with your order for reading the books more than with your mother's. The series was not planned beforehand as she thinks. When I wrote The Lion, I did not know I was going to write any more. Then I wrote Prince Caspian as a sequel and still didn't think there would be any more. And when I had done The Voyage, I felt quite sure it would be the last. But as I found, 
I was wrong. So perhaps it did, does not matter very much in which order anyone reads them. Interesting. Being that I've never read anything beyond The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's I probably won't. Um, it's you know, to you. But, but it's still really interesting that, to see what the, the author has to say about that. So um robert also has a comment where he says i'm using this chance to finally read all of the narnia books so thank you for choosing this one this one is the only one i previously read although i have seen the disney film adaptations of chris caspian and the dawn trader the last i read was the silver chair so only three more left by the way i'm also using this chance to finally rewatch the disney films and first and the first time for the bbc adaptations they made starting in 1988 wow was the battle in that in this adaptation cringy so yeah yeah but that's our feedback indeed thank you well tom yeah we wait with bated breath on what we're going to be reading next time yeah so i my last two picks have been old like really old i mean beowulf Beowulf. right and walden So I wanted to go something with something more contemporary. I wanted to, you know, just kind of bring myself into the 21st century and picked something off of my reading list that was published in 2022. So it's a fairly recent novel. It's by an author we actually have read before. Okay. So and discuss the next episode. We are going to be looking at the novel Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John. Oh no, with the hotel, the glass hotel. Well, I've read the glass hotel. Oh wait, which one is Sea of Tranquility then? The one with the moon on the cover? Have I read this? Maybe. Oh, interesting. This wasn't 2022. Yeah, this is Uh-oh. her most recent book. What if, oh, maybe I haven't. Sea of, let me do my Goodreads search while we're... Oh, I have read. <laughs> okay. I gave it five stars. Okay. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, the, the Glass Hotel was the one that came out Okay. between this and uh, Station Eleven. So, um, oh And that's all. I would recommend the Glass Hotel. I did enjoy that. Yeah, I can't even. I'm like reading the synopsis and I'm like, I don't remember this at all. So this should be interesting. Well, my copy is oh, oh, 255 pages, so it's not that Okay, long. I do remember this with the weird, like, they kind of pass out or have, like, a transcendent moment in the woods. All right. So, okay. yeah, so that's our, it's a little, I think it's a little science fiction-y. It's a little, yeah. and it's definitely more recent, and it's an author who we both enjoyed their work before. So I'm looking forward to seeing what this is. I bought it a couple of years ago, and sat on the shelf so let's let's go ahead and do it oh so, so you haven't read it no no <laughs> it was, wow, i bought I it completely i saw it at a bookstore i bought it yeah i saw it at a bookstore i bought it. i'm like i'm gonna okay. read this and i put okay. it on my shelf and that was my bad i'm like oh that's okay I'm reading this. okay well. so uh-huh until then <laughs> don't forget to leave us some feedback mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about this episode or any other episode and as always uh oh and, and if you have opinions on death of the author yeah send it our way because Absolutely. it's definitely worth a much longer discussion than the, yeah here. as well as movie tie-in covers yes movie tie-in covers as well sure. yes all right well then thank you very much for listening and take care 
And if you get a chance, you should get yourself a doll that cries and wets herself. Good night. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.